Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane. Big show on the docket for you today. We have MRN's Alex Hayden with us to discuss his wild, wacky career that spans motorsports, the film industry, entertainment. He is straight up. One of the most interesting men in motorsports. And I know I say that for a lot of people, but Alex is a bit underappreciated in my mind. He's so talented with what he does on the airways. I've listened to him since I was a wee little lad, whether it's on pit road and the turns now in the booth for the last several years, he is one of the best to do it at MRN. So I'm glad that he gave me so much of his time to go through his story. It is an insanely unique one. I'm really looking forward for you guys to hear that. We also are going to talk a little bit about Michigan International Speedway. Happy Harvick snapping the streak. You hear that? That was a streak being snapped. But before we do any of that, as always, we got to throw it back in the Wayback Machine. And Papa Siegel is going to help us pay homage to number 59. And I think a familiar name to most of you guys, if you listen to us on TMD every single morning on Sirius XM NASCAR Radio. What you got cooked up this week for us, Papa Siegel? Take it away. Thank you, Duve, and welcome everyone to episode 159. The 50s have been tough, but we're ending on a high note. Only 241 starts for the 59 car and three wins. 95 of those starts and two of the wins were recorded by Tom Pistoni. Tiger Tom was a short track demon, and don't take my word for it. Fireball Roberts once said, that Pistoni was the toughest guy to beat on quarter and half mile tracks. That's high praise. Pistoni started racing in 1950 and was a legend at Chicago Soldier Field, where he won three consecutive championships from 1951 to 1953 at the short track they used to run there. Yes, that Soldier Field. Tiger Tom recorded 38 total feature wins in all at that track. His first NASCAR sanctioned win came at Chicago in a ragtop in 1956. I did not know he raced in the convertible series. And he won there again in 1957 in a hardtop. Pistoni's racing accomplishments are considerable, but his biggest claim to fame may relate to the 1960 Daytona 500. That year, Tommy Irwin crashed his car into the infield lake during the first qualifying race. He lived to tell about it, but Tiger Tom, who couldn't swim, wasn't going to take any chances. He wore a life jacket and an oxygen tube in his car during the race just in case. I knew about that story, but did not know that A.J. Foyt, who Pistoni laughingly once said was an even bigger cheater than he was, took one of the oxygen tanks, filled it up with nitrous oxide, and put it in his car. Pistoni, still laughing, said that he got away with it. I believe it. 
What do I keep telling you? They were different times, my friends. With that kind of racing lineage, it's no surprise that Pistol Pete Pistoni, Davey's colleague at Sirius XM NASCAR Radio, and Tiger Tom's nephew, found his career path in racing. What I don't understand, though, is with an uncle like Tiger Tom, how come Pete's nickname isn't Piston Pete? Maybe you can ask him, Duve. And regardless, ask Pete to pass along our best wishes to Tiger Tom, who by all accounts is still kicking it in his early 90s. That's all for this week. Back to you, Duve. Thank you, Dad. Yeah, Pete, are you listening? Hope you are, Petey. Petey! Pass along the message to Uncle Tiger Tom, please. Crazy stories, though, right? I mean, Pete was on this show a handful of months ago, and he spoke about those times riding in the car itself on the flatbed, going down the road to all those races in the Midwest with his Uncle Tiger Tom. And if you want to hear more stories like that, go ahead back and listen to that episode with Pistol Pete, not Piston Pete. So, yeah, Pistol Pete Pistoni not Piston Pete Pistone. I got you, Petey. Don't worry. Thank you, Dad, as always, for the way back segment and for the history lesson. Always love learning a little bit more. Let's start off this episode, as we always do, with a good old-fashioned... And throw it straight over to our interview with the Motor Racing Network's Alex Hayden. He is the play-by-play voice for the network. He's been in the booth for the last several years, but he's been with the network and the company for the last 26. He is an industry veteran. He has been doing this for as long as I have been alive, pretty much. And that says it all right there. You guys know his work in NASCAR and in the motorsports space. You'll learn a little bit more about his upbringing, how it relates to motorsports, why he almost didn't go into motorsports, and everything in between. This guy is one of the most interesting characters on the media side, at least, that I can remember in a long, long time speaking to. A lot more to Alex Hayden than meets the eye, or in most cases, the ear on the Motor Racing Network. I'll get out of the way and let you hear the awesome, informative, interesting chat with MRN's finest, Alex Hayden. Pleasure to welcome on to the show this week. He is the voice of NASCAR, one of many in the blue shirts. The Motor Racing Network's finest, Alex Hayden. I'm surprised that you're not on the golf course and you're talking with me instead today on a Tuesday. Wow. Well, that, that was this morning. Uh, yeah, I got out and got in uh, first thing this morning, got on the first tee. Then I've been in the office doing prep work for Richmond this upcoming weekend. So it's been uh, been quite a good day and capping it off with this. Ah, Yes. This is the best part of your day, I'm sure. It is. <laughs> What's your home golf course? Uh, home golf course here would be Walnut Creek Country Club here in Goldsboro. Okay. It's just, just east of Goldsboro, so that would be the home course. Number one, I could split that, I guess, between there and Cutter Creek course. Okay. You got a handicap you want to disclose? Um, yeah, I can do that. You know what? I can prove it. I've got it <laughs> on the USGA app. I can do that if um, if that's the way to because it. for those that don't know, Alex is a big, big golfer. 3.7. I can see it right there. Wow. <laughs> That's impressive. I wasn't expecting that low. <laughs> see, nobody would believe me. So that's why I have to go to the USGA yeah. app. <laughs> have proof on it. Yeah, you got to have the receipts in this day and age. And you do. So you clearly have been doing this long enough to know what you're doing. 
<laughs> that, that's sadly the, the world we live in. As they say, if there's no picture, it didn't happen, right? No, exactly. Picks or it didn't happen, as the kids say. Yes. Right. We'll, we'll get into golf a little bit more a little bit later. Um, and we're going to get into kind of your whole story, your background. You are so interesting in the research that I did. I found a lot of stuff. So <laughs> don't you worry. We'll dive into all of it. But I just want to know what it's like for you right now. We're in the dog days of summer. It's hot. Traveling a lot. Back to back to back to back races here with MRN. Playoffs are coming up. It's full throttle right now, I bet. Um, yeah, it is. But, you know, this is the back half of summer is where you really get into grind mode because, as we all know, you start the season, there's so much excitement. Then all of a sudden you're a quarter of a way through and then you're halfway through the season. You think, where, where did the first half go? But once we get to these hundred degree days and back to back weeks and all the traveling, all the hotels, the rental cars, the, the <laughs> restaurants everywhere. I got to tell you, when you get to this point, you start looking ahead and say, okay, playoffs are just around the corner. And once you get there, obviously it's the countdown is on 10 races to go, but you know what? That's part of it. This is just the grind and I wouldn't trade it for anything. I'm doing exactly what I love to do. And that's traveling and calling NASCAR races. Not a bad gig. And you get paid to do it. Crazy, right? Yeah, it is. That's right. <laughs> we will get to much more discussion about NASCAR and the fact that you are kind of living your dream and a lot of other people's dreams. But before we do that, Alex, the way that I like to work is to go all the way back. Oh, boy. And I think that I found out racing has always been in your life, but it wasn't necessarily P1 in the terms of what you wanted to do professionally. I think that you initially had to or wanted a career in acting and or medicine. You Both. seem to be a jack of all trades of sorts. You know what? I'm impressed. Uh, whatever shovel you use to dig, you hit, you hit gold. Um, and I'll tell you, I went through two of your MRN colleagues for some dirt, and they didn't even give me any of it. So oh, this is all me. Wow. So we do trust each other. Uh, yes. No. Uh, <laughs> no, yes. The answer, the answer is yes, both of those. First and foremost, I, I thought medicine. I wanted to be a trauma surgeon. Hands down, that's what I wanted to do. Uh, my mom worked in an emergency department and surgery. She went back and forth. So I was exposed to that type of uh, scenario and that type of life early on. Uh, when I turned 16, still in high school, obviously, I had the opportunity to go to the emergency department at, at my local hospital uh, where my mom worked and got to shadow doctors and actually ended up getting paid to do it. Uh, they knew what my plans at that time were going to be. And that was to go straight into to East Carolina University on to medical school and trauma surgeon. But uh, I realized not too long after that, I didn't want to be in school for 14 years. Um, I wasn't a bad student by any stretch of the imagination, but I didn't want to be a career student either, if that makes right. any sense. So it, it became more of a patience thing. I, I played football, basketball, and baseball growing up uh, all the way through high school. So I was an athlete growing up and, and doing all of that. So I love sports as well. And I got to thinking about it, you know, I want to do something in sports. Does that mean go to sports medicine to kind of marriage the two? Uh, and that really wasn't what I wanted to do. And it wasn't until listening growing up to, to Joe Garagiola, Marty Brenneman, WLW in Cincinnati. I'm, I'm from Indiana originally. Yep. And when you're laying in bed at night as a kid and you're listening to the Cincinnati Reds broadcast on your transistor radio when you're supposed to be going to sleep, that sort of stays with you some way, somehow. And I didn't realize it stayed with me as much as it did. Obviously, I was a big race fan. My dad was a newspaper photographer, so he was assigned to shoot the Indy 500. 
all the short tracks in and around uh, the Indiana and Ohio area. We were season ticket holders at Michigan International Speedway. So I grew up around racing as well. Uh, grew up listening to Barney Hall and to Eli Gold and, and everybody with MRN. So I knew everything about MRN. And it just kind of fell in my lap with the opportunity, the way things went. Um, when I decided I didn't want to stay in school as long as it was going to take. Um, fortunately, uh, I was very fortunate that I had an uncle that was an executive at Universal Studios down in Florida. And I, I took a summer and he said, come stay with me. And and uh, I can't guarantee you anything, but I can at least guarantee you an audition. Uh, so I auditioned down at Universal and got two different roles right off the bat. And that was uh, back then they had a ride, the Jaws ride. Yep. Uh, and they required a, a boat captain on the boat to take it around every eight Captain minutes. Hayden, at your service. Yeah, I was. my job was to kill Jaws every eight minutes. Um, and I did it every eight minutes. So I was undefeated against Jaws. <laughs> that was go. a lot of fun. The other one was uh, to be Marty McFly um, from Back to the Future movies. Keep in mind, I was younger. This was back <laughs> in the mid-90s. Mid uh, I was much younger, more hair, not as wrinkled up and gray. So I played Marty McFly. I had a buddy, a guy named Barry. That was Doc Brown. Uh, he and I are still buddies to this day. Crazy to say. But we would get in our little Back to the Future DeLorean, drive through the park into our designated spot, get out and do a little spiel, and then stand there and do pictures with guests, jump back in the car and take off. Uh, so those are my two roles that I got. And that kind of gave me the acting bug is like, man, this is a lot of fun. Keep in mind that I never did any kind of drama or anything through school. I never did any kind of acting or, or public speaking or anything of that nature, yeah. but it, it just worked. It's one of those things that just worked. Okay. Before we dive into that, did you get to keep a DeLorean at least? Did you get to drive oh. it home like one night and show your friends and your family like, Hey, look at this sick ride. Not a chance. <laughs> I, I tried. I tried to figure out and I asked everybody. I begged everybody, all the bosses, and they just mm. didn't say they just laughed at me. I guess they didn't let you take a shark home either. That probably would be unsafe. No, that 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 was kind of a bummer too. When they closed the Jaws ride down just a few years ago, uh, to build the Harry Potter world, which takes the place of where Jaws used to be. I, I did uh, I'm still a, an annual pass holder at Universal Studios. So when they were tearing the Jaws ride down, I went there and I was trying to talk my way into at least getting something from yeah. the ride, uh, but they would not give anything away. Oh, well, well, you have the memories at least. I do. And I still have the script and all the audition papers and everything I had to, to have for that. Well, you mentioned that acting wasn't really on your radar. You had never done any of that. You had an uncle that had a connection to Universal and you got that and you had a great time, but where did your interest for acting or that side of things come from? Because it seemed like on paper, it just kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah, you know, I can't really attribute that to any one thing right off the top of my head because there really wasn't anything to base it off of. I, I've given it thought. The older I've gotten is like, where did this all come from? How did this all kind of happen? And I guess it's because while my parents were professionals and, and had their careers, uh, they were both music majors, and and my dad was a leader of a big band, a big band jazz, and uh, you know playing all kinds of of swing music, um, and, and Count Basie and being performing all the time. He had he had concerts once, twice, sometimes three times a week, and I would try to go to as many as I possibly could. My mom was a singer, uh, so she was performing. So I think it was just kind of in me innately. Uh, and I think that's probably about the only way I can describe the, how it got there for myself. 
Why have we not heard you sing it on the broadcast? Uh, We're missing an opportunity there. I'm awful. (laughs) It's crazy. People say, hey, if you can speak well, you can sing. Okay, that's not true. Eh. Eh, That's not true. Not true. I can play the piano a little bit. Uh, I can play the drums. I can strum a guitar. I can do little things like that. Uh, But no, I'm, I'm not a singer. All right. Well, I think that's probably best for everybody. We'll, we'll let Jeff do the singing alongside. Yes. I think he'll be a little bit better. Yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> so like you said, you, you grew up in the Indiana area. I know you guys as a family, I think when you were in middle school or so moved down south. Um, I have never experienced moving, especially at kind of a pivotal point in, in your development as kind of a child. Was that difficult at all for you? I know some people move more than others, but at that point in your life, were you okay with kind of uprooting your life and moving or was it a little bit difficult? At the time, I was not okay with it, but you know, that's, that's all I knew. I was a kid. That's where my friends were. Um, I wasn't okay with it. I have a brother two years older than I. And once we got to North Carolina, we were here a month or so in the summer getting set for school. He didn't adjust all that well. He wasn't all that thrilled about it. But, you know, I basically just accepted it. Uh, There was nothing I could do about it. This is where I was going to start going to school for that school year. I was living in North Carolina. Might as well make the best of it. And um, did a little research, found out, hey, football tryouts are starting off. Went, tried out, made the football team right off the bat. And I think that was the that was the catalyst because that meant I had a bunch of friends right off the bat that were on the football team. And that kind of branched out to all their friends and, and one thing kind of led to another. So while I didn't want to move, once I got down here, I had no problem adjusting. You don't strike me as an offensive lineman type, maybe a receiver. Am I right? No, believe it or not. I was quarterback of our football team. Wow. Look at you. You're a star. And, and when I was in my prime, you know, all through middle school and (laughs) high school, uh, I've been essentially the same height as I am right now. I'm still waiting on the growth spurt. So all of our okay. pass plays were roll right or roll left. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't see over the offensive line. That was just part of the fun. And it wasn't a whole lot of fun for me because that meant I'm constantly sprinting right or left. Uh, sometimes I got whacked pretty good because that means I'm running away from the offensive line and protection. Yeah. So, uh, But you know what? That's, that's the only way we can do it. We uh, In middle school, when we moved down here, we won our championship um two years in a row so that was good wow. get to the next level though um got the high school football and we got we got waxed pretty good uh <laughs> we were 500 maybe but my sophomore junior year freshman football didn't really count for me uh because you, you only play a handful of games yeah. but after that uh, we were a 500 team my senior year we were we thought we were the the deal we weren't gonna we were gonna play <laughs> And of course, we ended up three and eight our, our senior yep. year. But that's part of the fun. That'll happen. Yeah, I played JV football my freshman year of high school. I probably played seven snaps all year long, bruised my tailbone during two days during the summer. And I decided after that year I'd had enough. <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that's part of it. You're going to get banged up and beat up. And I, to the point, I love football so much. And a lot of people may not know this. Um, I actually, on the side, coached high school football. And middle school football on the side, because I still have friends in the area that are that are coaches. And they said, hey, would you be interested? I know you can't be here for the games because I'm away racing on the weekends. But do you want to come be a part of practice on Monday, Tuesdays and Wednesdays? And I was like, heck, yeah. Uh, So I did that for about five years. That was a good time. Coach Hayden at your service, former former almost state champion. They got to have the respect for you right out the gate. <laughs> the sad thing about it is I could not find because they didn't make them anymore. The old 
uh, 1980s bike brand coaches shorts, those big polyester things. Oh, yeah. Might have yeah. found those and stick some uh, some play sheets in my back pocket uh-huh. with a whistle. It would have been fantastic. It would have been a dream. Spider 2, Y Banana. That's the Alex Hayden special from John Gruden, right? That's not, not far from it. Yeah. <laughs> So back to racing here. I know you mentioned your dad was a photographer in Indiana. He photographed a lot of big races, Indianapolis 500. I'm sure he was at Winchester, Anderson, uh, maybe even Lucas Oil back in the day too. I mean, some of those iconic racetracks in the area. Besides the fact that your dad was involved in racing and at the racetrack a lot and probably took you along with him, was there any other racing influence, be it in your family or your friends that you hung out with, or was dad basically the catalyst for your passion there? All of our family members, if, if you're from Indiana, you're a race fan and you're a high school basketball fan. Yep, yep. It's just how it goes. Uh, so most all my family members were race fans. So it was everywhere. Um, my grandfather actually was the only one to ever actually be a race driver, but that was short lived. He, he used to run sprint cars, uh, occasionally it wasn't a full-time guy. He'd go out and run, just have some fun. Mm-hmm. That all ended, uh, because my grandmother did not want him to race. And it came to a screeching halt, almost literally at Winchester Speedway. When he flipped out of the, the track out into the woods behind turns three and four, uh, he was cut up and, and bruised up, but fortunately nothing else injury wise. And that was pretty much it. <laughs> there was, there was no more racing for him, but, uh, I, I have been just a, a racing fanatic since way back in, uh, the Indy 500, all the tracks you mentioned, Anderson Speedway, Indianapolis Raceway Park, Winchester, Eldora used to go to Eldora an awful lot. Uh, very lucky. Uh, yeah. Dad would take us as he went to go to work, my mom, my brother, and myself, we just go sit in the grandstands. Uh, at a short track, or if it was the Indy 500, we always went to the infield and and roped us off a little section against the fence over on the back straightaway. It's just what we did, and uh, just wonderful memories. And then on the professional side, I think Wayne County Speedway may have been among the first jobs that you end up getting in terms of on the mic broadcasting at the racetrack. And I think the story behind you getting that job was an interesting one, right? Yeah, yeah. There's there's some good stories. Keep in mind, I was I was in Florida working at Universal still, uh, and at that point, loving what I was doing, acting, but realizing I probably wasn't going to make a living at this. Sure. Um, and a friend of mine, because I was still a race fan, uh, and a friend of mine back in North Carolina called me and said, "Hey, I, there's newspaper classifieds, believe it or not, back in those days, said that uh, going through the newspaper and the classifieds that this." track called Wayne County Speedway outside of Goldsboro was auditioning for track announcers on, on PA. Um, the auditions were the following Saturday. So I took, made sure I was off and I came back to North Carolina. I was one of 14 people to, uh, to announce and it was before the season started. So the track owner and a couple of other people were in the infield listening on PA while they were prepping and doing things. It was a paved track. Um, there was a woman named Teresa Richardson, who was the track promoter, and she was the one up in the broadcast tower up, upstairs that was handling the audition. So everybody signed in, did what you did. I just happened to be number 14 of 14. That's and the for last. Audition, right? Yeah. The audition process was uh, they had a little script of a couple of commercials. They wanted you to read that on the microphone, and, and then they wanted you to kind of visualize and, and call a lap or two of play-by-play with no race cars on the track, just a Saturday afternoon in March. Use your imagination. Exactly. Exactly. So 13 people go and I thought, man, I've never done this before. I've never done any kind of play by play. My only experience is 
is killing Jaws every eight minutes. And, and that's only <laughs> microphone stuff I had. Uh, so I got going and she handed me the script. I read about the first three or four sentences and she gave me the hand. You know, they, that's, that's enough. You can stop. Uh, so I thought, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm done. At least I tried it. At least I'll go see my mom and dad and I'll go on back to Florida. Um, the next week I got a call from Teresa and she said, you're the one. Uh, I knew it right when you started, took two sentences. Um, the, the track owner who was listening down in the infield did not want me. He had somebody else that he wanted, but Teresa absolutely went to bat and said, I'm telling you that this is our guy. Um, so they raced on Friday nights at Wayne County Speedway back then. Uh, we start the season in April. This is 1996, April of 96. We start the season. The second week of the season, this guy walks up to me because I'm the only announcer. So I do the on-track interview and then run back upstairs to get ready for the next feature. This guy stops me and says, where do you announce on Saturdays? I don't even know who you are. Uh, so I told him who I was and I don't announce on Saturdays. I go back to Florida. And he said, well, I want you at my track, which was East Carolina Speedway. So here I am two weeks in. Now I'm working Friday night and Saturday night. I'm thinking this, this isn't bad right here. They're paying my way. They're paying my hotel. And I thought, wow, this, this is okay. I, I can do this on the side and make some extra scratch. Yeah. Um, and about, I don't know, about midway through the season, uh, unbeknownst to me, Teresa Richardson, the, the original promoter there on the Friday night track, set a tape recorder up in the back of the PA booth and secretly recorded me calling a race and boxed that little cassette tape up and mailed it to Daytona Beach, Florida, to John McMullen, who was then the uh, president of the Motor Racing Network, simply said, here's a tape, RPA announcer, here's my contact number. And the note simply said, you got to hear this guy. Um, and he listened and gave me an audition, uh, which we couldn't audition until January, believe it or not, at Walt Disney Speedway when the truck series was running at the Walt Disney World Mile Speedway. So that was January of 97. I convinced him, I guess, and uh, Daytona uh, at Speed Weeks, I was down there wearing a, an MRN shirt. So in 10 months of never calling a race, never working on radio, I uh, went from one track to two tracks to being on MRN in 10 months. That's incredible. Lot, lot to unpack there. So first of all, <laughs> Teresa, right? Yeah. Is it fair to say, I don't know if it is, because I feel like your talent would have spoke for yourself down the road and you would have ended up where you are now. But without her, without your permission, secretly recording you, I don't know where you would be, you know, in that 10 month span. Who, who knows, right? I mean, she had the wherewithal to take a chance on you, go behind the track owner's back, kind of, and basically vouch yeah. for you. And then go behind your own back to help you out. That is, that is really something right there. Teresa's the MVP. She's sneaky, isn't she? she um, sure yeah, is. no, it, she is 100% the reason. I have no idea what I would be doing had she not taken the chance uh, and, and then gone behind my back and recorded and, and, and had the wherewithal to do that. Um, she and I haven't really been in contact the last handful of years. Um, she still lives in the Goldsboro area, uh, we used to, to, to stay in touch more so. Um, once I kind of got with MRN and, and knew I was going to be a regular with MRN, I, uh, I took one of my shirts, my MRN shirts, and framed it up and, and just hand wrote a note out and put it inside the frame, just thanking her uh, wow. for everything she's done. And I thanked her a gazillion times 
since then. And, and she's told me every single time she goes, you don't need to thank me. It's, it was my job to hire you. And there was no way I wasn't going to try to help you get to the next level. So yeah, she is just the, the godsend to, to get me to where I'm at. I appreciate your kind words, but I don't think I would made it to, to where I'm at, let alone uh, be in the sport of NASCAR racing had she not done that. That's a really nice gesture. Really, really cool story. And also having your audition at Disney World Speedway, that's just so cool. Such a blast from the past. Were you nervous at all? Or did you know at that point, if they wanted to have you come out and audition, they knew that you had the chops to do it? Um, I was terrified. Absolutely <laughs> terrified. Uh, it, it was one of those deals you know, Florida, obviously in Orlando area, I have a lot of family down in that area. Yeah. And so I felt comfortable. I'd been out there to the Walt Disney Speedway. Uh, I watched an IndyCar race there at one point. So I was familiar with the racetrack. I was just sick to my stomach the, the whole time leading up to that weekend, let alone once I finally got there. Sure. And then when I, uh, I got my credentials, it's a funny thing because back then you had the big plastic credential holders for the paper credentials. I was just wandering around and Richard Petty was there and I was like, Oh my God, the King is here. So I geeked out and went, got Richard Petty's autograph before I did anything else. <laughs> I've always been kind of the, uh, the kind of person is like the absolute worst thing that can happen is somebody can tell you no. Uh, that's how I approached the initial audition for, for short track PA. And that's exactly the way I auditioned for, for MRN. The worst they can do is just tell me no. Sure. Um, the, the best thing that can happen though, is I can fool everybody and, and snooker my way into a gig. Uh, and, and fortunately <laughs> that's what I did. I, um, I was asked to, to come to, to Daytona in February for that speed weeks in 97. And I didn't do anything on the air for MRN radio wise, but back then MRN did all the PA for the ARCA race. They did it for the, the NASCAR goodies dash series race. They did it for IROC. Um, so I was working the backstretch for a lot of those. Uh, so that was, that was pretty cool. Uh, and then they put me on the air the very next week of the season, which the second race of the, of the year was at Rockingham. And that was my first on air. And, uh, from there, just heck, I kind of haven't looked back and here we are. This is my what 26th season now with motor racing network. So that first race you did at Rockingham, uh, going out on a limb to say, doing so with legends like Barney Hall, Eli Gold, maybe I think Alan Bestwick may have been doing it back then, Marty Snyder, those types of guys. You were just a youngin. Yeah, so that was that was it. And, and it was Alan Bestwick and Barney Hall in the booth. Joe Moore was in turn one. I was working the backstretch. You had Jim Phillips, Winston Kelly, and Marty Snyder on pit road. Whew. I was terrified. And <laughs> So I put the equipment on and the, all the wireless gear and I walk out of the MRN truck right behind the pit lane to get ready for the, for the Jim Goodrich 200. It was the NASCAR Bush series race then. And to get to my position, you know, Rockingham had pits on the back stretch as well. And that's where the Bush series garage was. So I had to come out of the truck on the front side of the track, walk across the infield, walk across the back stretch, jump the wall and then walk out to my billboard and turn number three. Glamorous. Oh, spectacular. It's the high life, right? So I, I walk out the door and I'm shaking. I'm thinking to myself, what the hell did you get yourself involved with? Because <laughs> um, I had gone through the production meetings and all this stuff and had everybody tell me, you know, there's only a million people listening. You don't have to really worry too much. And, I, and I'm just shaking in my boots. Well, I get maybe 20 steps away from the truck and I hear this big, booming, deep voice from behind go, hey, new guy. 
And I turned around and it was Jim Phillips. Uh, Jim was our lead pit reporter for years and years for the Motor Racing Network. And he wasn't afraid to tell you exactly what was on his mind. But he goes, hey, new guy. And I turned around. I was like, yes, sir. He said, and I'll, I'll put the, the family version on there. Don't screw this up. And he turned around and walked away and slammed the truck door. And I'm standing there just freaking out. I was like, oh, my gosh. Now what am I going to do? If I wasn't a basket case already, I got Jim Phillips telling me not to screw this oh broadcast Um but I did. I made mistakes. And, you know, it's, it's funny because I still have the actual audio cassette tape of my first MRN broadcast of that race. Wow. Believe it or not, I still have the audition tape that Teresa Richardson secretly recorded me too. No kidding. Audio cassette. So uh, it, it was it was a wonderful experience. I wouldn't trade any of it for anything and all the ups and downs to get to where I'm at. So that was in the late 90s. You worked pit road. You worked the backstretch. You worked the turns. You worked in the garage during practice and qualifying sessions. You're in the booth now. Going back to all those different steps, was there a specific moment or maybe a specific time frame where you finally felt comfortable? You felt your feet under you and said, okay, I'm not nervous anymore. I know I can do this. I know I can do it well. Let's go ahead and do it then. Yeah, you know, there, there have been a handful of times I was always super insecure and somewhat still am professionally because you're only as good as your last broadcast. And if you screw up something, you can be out. Uh, So there's enormous pressure every time. So I was always concerned, is this going to be good enough? Not to mention the fact that we were constantly auditioning new people all the time. And there's only so many spots available on the air. So there's nonstop pressure. And I was always worried I wasn't going to be good enough to continue on. I think the big thing was, though, when when then President David Hyatt came to me and said, hey, I need somebody to come work pit road full time for me. You're going to be on the what we call the number one team, the A team. You're going to work pit road. Uh, You'll be the number three guy, but you're still going to be traveling every week and you're going to be one of the main ones. Um, and, and as soon as that was offered to me and I signed my name on the dotted line, that I think is the first time I really kind of just, you know, decompress, take that yeah. deep breath and think, okay, okay, I made it. I'm here now. I, and I don't, I don't have to really sweat too many small things. Don't get me wrong. You, you still have to perform every week, mm-hmm. but I've got to a point now where it's become secondhand. I still put in the hard work. I still put in the hours of research. I still put in as much garage time as I possibly can. Uh, And and those are things I truly believe you have to do because uh, the late, great Barney Hall said, that's what you have to do. That's what he says. Then that's what you do. Eli Gold said, I'm going to test you and I'm not going to throw things to you unless I know for sure I can confidently do it, that I know you're going to have the story. And there were a couple of times where he tried to throw some stuff at me and I was prepared for it and I earned his respect and friendship along the way and Alan Bestwick's and Joe's and Winston's and everybody's. So it's just been a, a heck of a ride. It really has to the point where I finally, probably 10 years into to the MRN career, finally was able to just really sit back and say, okay, I feel like I'm confident enough why I made this deal. Yeah, I, I can relate to a lot of what you said there. The The insecure aspect of professionally, there's always someone that's younger trying to get what you have and all those different things. And, you know, I was, I was going to say, was there a moment where you feel like you had made it? You kind of mentioned that that was one of them right there when David asked you to be the full-time pit reporter. And I would, I would assume as well that at that point 
even though you knew at the, it'd been 10 years, I mean, that's a decade of working these broadcasts and refining your skill and your craft and gaining the respect of your coworkers, your peers, those in the garage, everything like that. I'm sure that one of those moments, probably when you signed on that dotted line had to be an exhale of sorts, but also probably reflecting a little bit now. And even back then, a culmination of, of all that got you to where you're at from Wayne County to Anderson to everything in between, because at that point you had officially quote unquote made it in your own eyes. Yeah. You know, you're right. There there's been time to reflect and, and I try to, because you got to stay as humble as you possibly can, because this can all be gone in a matter of a snap of a finger. Um, when you're broadcasting, it's, it's, it's so much different than being a print reporter or, you know, somebody who can sit down and write the story out because when you're broadcasting live event, you do not have the luxury of the backspace key. Once those words come out of your mouth, it's kind of like toothpaste. Once, once it's out, you're not putting it back in the tube. Um, you can highly relate to that with what you do. So you have to, to, to really think what you're saying, but also rely on just natural instincts Sometimes things come flying out of my mouth while I'm calling a race that I'll stop after I drop it off to Moody over in turn one. And I'll kind of think, wait a minute, what did I just say? Where'd that, you know, <laughs> where, what was that? Oh, yeah. Um, but no, yeah, it's, it's, I'm, I'm super privileged to be where I'm at. And obviously I would not be here if it wasn't for all of our, our wonderful teammates past and currently present. Is this your first year or second year in the booth? This would be, let's see, 2019 was my first. So what's this, three years now? Okay, so third year in the booth. I showed you one. Uh, I consider, at least, you know, growing up, going to the racetrack, listening to the booth and everything like that, I always just differentiated it be, being, I could hear the cars in the background, you're in the turn. Pretty simple. If I didn't hear the cars in the background, you're in the booth. You're probably in the air conditioning, feeling comfortable, things like that, right? Was going into the booth, was that always a goal of yours kind of from the start of MRN or was it something that kind of organically came to be? No, you know, yes, I, I would lie if I said I didn't want to be in the booth, but it wasn't a goal, if that makes any sense. I wanted to be there, but once I went pit road, because the traditional MRN way was the booth anchors went from the turns because of the play-by-play -play aspect of it. Right. Um, I was fortunate because I started off in the turn. So I had play-by-play -play experience, but I, I saw an opportunity that was given to me to go to pit road, to, to do a different discipline, to do the interviews, to, to know the stories. Um, when you're in the booth and in the turns, you're calling the race. When you're in the pits, you know what's going on in the race. Doesn't necessarily mean you report on everything, but by golly, you know what's happening behind the scenes. Sure. So that all that experience kind of kind of came to it and when joe moore decided to, to step aside and retire uh, at the end of the 2018 season i never in a million years i never even went to uh management and and said that i was interested in it because nobody realistically from the, the pits went to the booth so i didn't even think i was in the running for it um and Ryan Horn, who is our program director and our producer and has been with us for, for years and years and years, this is kind of how it all happened. It was a it was a Monday night and I was home. We raced somewhere and I'd gotten home on Monday morning, Monday night, about 9 p.m. My my phone rings and I see it's Ryan Horn. And that's never a good sign when the boss is calling you on a Monday night after oh. a race weekend. 
So I thought, oh man, what did I do? And I'm what starting to replay every broadcast and I can't come up with something I screwed up. And Ryan said, uh, he goes, hey man, got a, got a question for you. I said, yeah, what's that? And yeah, I'm shaking in my boots. He said, what do Mike Joy, Barney Hall, Eli Gold, Joe Moore, and Alex Hayden all have in common? And I was dumbfounded. I was like, oh man, um, I can think, well, some of them aren't with us anymore, uh, but some are. So I'm like, Ryan, I have no idea. And Ryan Horn, he just simply said, they've all been anchors of the Motor Racing Network. And it took a second. And I was like, what? Huh? What? Because they never asked me realistically if I wanted. It. I didn't even know my name was being tossed around for it. Yeah. Honest, honest. In. Um, and they they gave it to me. And uh, gave me that opportunity. And I was just blown away by it. And uh, I've tried my best every time I, I've been in the air conditioning. Don't get me wrong. I've paid my dues. I've been on pit road when it's 130. I've been in stand out in the turn in the rain. Um, the guys give us a hard time for sitting up in the air conditioning booth out of the elements. But um, I, I, I'm just so fortunate. I really am to, to be able to, to get to where I'm at right now. And I have no ambitions other than to keep going forward that's all i want to do keep moving forward you and jeff have a great camaraderie you guys have great chemistry in the booth and obviously dave baggy uh chris steve who am i missing kyle everybody jason that that is on the broadcast you guys work so seamlessly and you know i had baggy on earlier i had jeff on earlier steve's been on the show and i always ask them in terms of the mrn broadcast and and painting the picture slowing down. I remember Jeff told me the story of what Barney Hall told him and just said, son, call what you see. It's easier said than done. How did you wind up learning to slow things down at 200 plus miles an hour and just call what you see? Barney Hall took me outside of the truck one day. He goes, and he always did say so this, boy, and said, Barney, that, that elk in North Carolina draw goes, boy, you talk fast. You need to slow down. And I was like, First, I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm getting chastised by Barney Hall. And then I, it kind of hit me while he was talking to me. He's like, he's actually trying to help me here. Um, and obviously, you listen to everybody. Listen to everybody. Take every piece of advice you can get. And that's what Barney did. And he's done it with a lot of us. Just slow down. He goes, you use your words well. You got good content. Just slow it down. He said, keep in mind, those race cars are going almost 200 miles an hour. You're not going to out-talk that race car. So just simply get your thought out and drop it to the next person in line. Uh, and, and you kind of touched on it a while ago. He ba backs it up, says, if you simply say what you see, you're never going to have a bad broadcast. So Barney, uh, he was right. It's just so simple, but it's so profound and it's so hard. I mean, I, I always think about Striegel told me the story of his audition at the Goodies Dash Race at Daytona. Uh, and he, Barney Hall was up there with them. And he said, call what you see. And he did it, but it's just so difficult to do that when they're coming at you at 200 miles an hour. You want to call what you see, but you're seeing so much and you don't know what to focus in on. And then you have to f worry about your inflection and where the drop point is. And then you got to give it to the next person. It's, it's so hard and you guys make it look so easy. And yes, I'm blowing smoke, but it's warranted because I just, I marvel at what you guys do every single week. And I'm sure that, like you mentioned, you know, you took your lumps. You made some mistakes. I'm sure standing out in the pouring rain was not too glamorous, getting sunburned. But 
that probably all made you a better booth announcer as to what you are now having that chemistry because Jeff basically did the same thing. Yeah, being able to to do every position at MRN, um, all three pit positions, you know, the first turn, the, the second turn. Yeah, it, it all put together is experience and you have to continue to take every piece of that knowledge and, and every experience you get and continue to mold yourself. You know, to this day, I just marvel because once we get going on the, on the network with some play by play, it just astounds me. And you talk about insecure when you listen to Jeff Striegel and his calls, and then you listen to Dave Moody, the stuff that comes out of Dave Moody's mouth, he's such a wordsmith. It's, unbelievable. Then Moody goes to Bagman. It's like, what am I doing here? All I'm doing is saying what I'm seeing. And these guys have such description and such a command over the English language. It's phenomenal. And, and it's not just them. If it's Kyle Ricky, Dan Hubbard, Kurt Becker, the list goes on and on. They're phenomenally talented yeah. people. And I just feel like play by play wise, all I can do is just keep up with it. And, and if I can just keep up with him, that's all I'm trying to do. I'm never going to be them. Um, and that's another thing, too. Eli Gold told me one time, he said, be Alex Hayden. Don't worry about Dave Moody. Don't worry about Barney Hall. Don't worry about Eli Gold. Don't worry about Mike Bagley. They are them. Don't emulate anybody. Be who you are, because there's only one Alex Hayden. And, and I really, really took that to heart. All I can do is be myself. And... I can't compete on a broadcasting level with Moody and Bagman and Streaky and, and Becker and Kyle. And I can't compete with them, let alone on pit road. Once we do green flag stops, we did them at Michigan this past weekend. It's just phenomenal to sit back and listen to Postman and Kim Kuhn and Jason Toy and Winston okay. Kelly just fire off pit reports and pit stop calls. It, it's something that's just astonishing to me. And I'm just fortunate that every now and then I got to look down and look at my shirt and see an MRN logo on, on yeah. my shirt to think, my gosh, this is, this is just amazing. Well, you're selling yourself a little bit short. I'll be the one to tell you that. Cause you're, uh, you're right up in there with all those guys. I, well, I agree I'll though. Kind of you, but thank you. I, I, I just don't put myself in that league. I'll put you in there. All right. How about that? <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Um, so this, we've all been talking about radio, right? MRN has been your home. It continues to be for, Almost three decades now, not to age you, but you also, I was one year old when you had your audition, not to age you or anything. I'm uh, 51 and I'm happy to be 51. <laughs> well, you have the energy of a 21 year old, so that's good. Um, that. Television wise, you also had some stints with Fox Sports, NBC Sports um, in the, I think, mid to late 2010s, you were on television for them. How did those opportunities come about and were those anything that you sought out as well? No, did not seek any of that out. Um, I was very fortunate. Uh, somebody liked what they heard on, on the radio side of things. They needed a, another pit reporter to do um, a race. Uh, it was, I guess it was a Kentucky Speedway uh, on Fox. And I got the opportunity. They called me and said, hey, could you do this? First things first, you go to MRN powers that be and, and lay everything out and say, is this something doable? I'm under contract with MRN. That's my number one obligation. So if they say no, then, then it's not going to happen. But they were very kind and let me do the Fox deal. That was a one-off. Uh, and then Jeff Binky with NBC gave me a call and said, we'd love to, to use you on pit road for some of the standalone events, which was the Xfinity races, uh, whether it be Iowa or Kentucky, whatever the case may be. Uh, and I got to do a couple of years with NBC on the standalones working pit road. 
what a wonderful experience. And it's just something else I can add to my resume and my list of experience to say, I can do this and I can do it at a different level. Was it great? I don't know. That's for somebody else to determine. <laughs> it was good enough where they didn't say you're just doing this one and we're not inviting you back. Yeah. Uh, I got to do two years with NBC. So that was just so much fun. Uh, and to be able to do that was just kind of icing on the cake for what I already get to do. Few people have the experience of working on camera for television and on air for radio broadcasts, doing play-by-play -play pit reporting. You are one of the few. I know that they are both inherently completely different mediums because one, you're calling what you see, and another one, you are basically looking at what everybody else is seeing with you. How do the two differ for you and in terms of preparation, execution? How, how was those different for you? For play-by-play, -play, it's more or less you, you know who's driving what car. And in radio, we don't like to use car numbers because if you're out on the boat listening or in your garage listening or whatever the case may be, well, you can't see that car on the racetrack. So the number doesn't really help. Plus, the number on top of a car is not the star of our sport. The stars of our sport are the, are the women and men who hold the steering wheels. They are the ones. They are the whole reason this sport is here is because of their courage to, and bravery to go as fast as they go in a circle or in a road course. So the stars of our sport have names. So give them their name. Um, the, the key, though, and, and the biggest issue to prep as far as doing play-by-play -play is you never know if there's going to be a different paint scheme a different sponsor on board. So mm -hmm. you don't know that till you really get to the racetrack and then start looking at race cars and use the, the day in advance of the race to, to try to memorize paint schemes and whatnot. Um, when you're working pit road, there's a, so much more involved in it. At least for me, there was, because you have to know the crew chiefs. You got to know the engineers. You got to know the car chiefs. It helps to know as many crew members as you possibly can because they're a part of this sport this is a team sport so if you can say their name occasionally and give them credit for something that they did that in my opinion goes a long long way i i think the biggest thing though it goes true with every part of work in the broadcast and every discipline but more so on pit road is being in the garage and having FaceTime with everybody that's in that garage because you have to earn the trust of every one of those mechanics and crew members and drivers for that matter, you've got to earn their trust. Uh, it doesn't matter if we're broadcasting nationally or not. They're not going to give you all the, the details of a story if they don't trust you. And if you go out, if they tell you something that shouldn't go on air that they say is off the record and you go on air with it, you'll never, you're never going to last in this sport. So um, to, to have the relationships with everybody in the garage that I have and have been able to build and cultivate over the years, that to me is the greatest thing that I've done in this sport is all the friendships I've gotten out of it by just simply doing my job. I've made lifelong friends by doing that and spending time in the garage. It's gotten to a point now where we may not talk necessarily about race cars while we're leaning up against a stack of Goodyear tires. Uh, we might just be talk about, hey, what'd you do this week? Or what'd you grill out? Or how's the family doing? What's going on? So um, it's it's about the relationships when you work pit road. And that's where the stories come from. That's where you can find out the inside information to be able to report, to add to a broadcast. A lot of friendships, a lot of relationships, a lot of mentors along the way. We, we've mentioned Barney Hall a couple times. Boy, uh, <laughs> I read one story that you guys were broadcasting at Michigan International Speedway. Funny enough, good timing right now. 
uh, and you guys were headed on out. And Barney said, why don't we stop and play nine holes? And you just yeah. stopped playing nine holes in your uniform on the golf course, and then you went on your way. That's got to yeah. be one of the cool stories about Barney Hall. Barney Barney loved to get out on the golf course, and he knew I played golf as well. And, and yeah, I had the rental car. And so I was leaving the infield from working pit road, and uh, Barney, Barney told me that morning in the production meeting, so he must have had this plan. Uh, he said, I want to ride with you out of here. So I'll come down to the infield and meet you at the MRN truck and we'll jump into cars. All right, no problem. So we pull out. Normally I, I go out of the racetrack and because our hotel's in Jackson, Michigan, kind of northwest of the speedway. And normally I come out and go north out of the track. But he said, get on, get on Highway 12 here. Let's go this way. All right, whatever. He knew there was a little golf course down the road on the left because we get halfway down. He goes, boy, let's mean you go play golf. I was like, <laughs> Marty, we just we just got done doing a, a an Xfinity series race. <laughs> We're in our MRN shirts, golf shirts, mind you. Uh, yes. MRN golf shirts, and we had our pants on. None of us had golf clubs, right? There's just me and Barney. He goes, Don't worry about it. He said, they rent clubs there and they'll give us some balls and whatnot. And we'll go out, we'll go out and walk nine holes. And I thought, first of all, I thought, man, I'm I'm gonna embarrass myself because I I'm one of those superstitious guys when it comes to golf. I gotta have my wow. stuff. Um, so I get out there and Barney and Barney wouldn't let me pay for anything. He, he just wanted to go play golf with me. And we talked about everything except for racing. We talked about everything except for motor racing network. And that two hours of nine holes with Barney Hall is something I will cherish the rest of my days because it was just me and Barney Hall being buddies. And we didn't keep score. We didn't even take a scorecard with us. We'd hit our tee shots and, go out there and just talk all the way to the next shot. And uh, believe me, I think he beat me. Um, if, if I if <laughs> be told Barney beat me, um, but it didn't matter. I didn't care. It was the greatest couple of hours uh, and sunset is late in Michigan. So we wrapped up our, our nine holes of golf, got in the car, made the rest of the 30 minute drive on back to the hotel and continued our conversation. And it was turned out to be one of the greatest days of my life. That is an incredible story. I mean, I, I feel like he's probably given you and countless other people at MRN tons of advice. You mentioned that time he pulled you out in the holler and just said, you talk fast, slow down. And then playing golf with him for two hours. I mean, he, he seemed like one of those figures that was larger than life. And still now his legacy is larger than life. Yeah, but he's still just Barney Hall from Elkin, North Carolina. He's still a gentleman's gentleman. He truly was. And he would just talk to you and just be buddies with you. Uh, he wasn't afraid to tell you what he thought. He wasn't afraid to give you some advice and to critique you if he had respect for you. And maybe that's not the right way to term it, but he didn't do that with everybody. He did it with Mike Bagley. He did it with me. He did it with, with quite a few of us that are there right now. He did it with Moody, Jeff, and I, all of us, Postman. And there have been announcers that have been part of the, the network over the years for you know a year here or maybe two years here he didn't do those types of things with and um to be a colleague with barney hall was amazing but to be considered his friend was something that was just above everything else and um unfortunately when he passed away uh that was a tough day for everybody um but but karen um his lifelong partner and his family, they asked me to be one of these pallbearers. And that just, it really got to me because that really 
told me that Barney talked about me to them. And I truly was Barney's friend. And that was everything. And it still is. Yeah, I can only imagine. All right. I mentioned golf earlier. We've talked about it throughout the show. I don't golf. I'm not good. I'm a killer at putt-putt. But (laughs) I do not golf well. Um, I want to know, like, do you have any bucket list courses that you haven't played yet? The favorite course that you have played? Give me all the cliche golf things that you have done, you haven't done. Give me all of it. Yeah, I I want to play Augusta National. Who doesn't? Obviously, even, yes. Even if you're not a golfer, but you would go play Augusta National. 100% I would. I would embarrass myself, but I would play and I'd take yeah. the whole day. You know, one of our colleagues is Hall of Famer Rusty Wallace, and he's had the opportunity to play it a couple of times, and he's rubbed it in because he tells me how great it is. As um, he should. One of my former colleagues, Glenn Jarrett, he's had the opportunity to play there. He rubs it in. Um, I would love to play Augusta. I'd love to, to go overseas and go play the old course at St. Andrews, mm-hmm. the home of golf. Uh, I want to play there. Uh, more realistic courses that, that that have an opportunity that are bucket list. Uh, I'd love to play Sawgrass and Ponte Vedra Beach. There's a ton of people in the sport that have had the opportunity to play Sawgrass. Yeah. I just haven't had that chance yet. Uh, Pebble Beach is on that list. Haven't done that yet. But some of my, uh, my favorite courses to be at, um, Bay Hill in Orlando, where the Arnold Palmer Invitational PGA Tour event is. Phenomenal place. Um, I'm fortunate. I'm now the first T announcer for that PGA Tour event. Wow! Uh, I did that this year, uh, back in March. Uh, I got asked to be the so, first T announcer for that, and I've already been invited to come back and and do it again next year. Look so, at you go! Yeah. So you know that's Bay Hills, one of those top courses, and quite frankly, any course. And this is going to sound dumb, but let me explain it. Any golf course that simply mows the grass because I've played some courses that have cost me 50 bucks to play, which I wasn't thrilled about. And the grass was all kind of raggedy. It wasn't mow the grass. That's all I asked for on a golf course. Um, I love being outside and I love competing in in the, the game of golf because you compete against yourself. I'm, I am the harshest critic of myself professionally. I'm the harshest critic of myself on, on what shoes I wear. I'm the harshest critic of myself on, on how I play the game of golf. So you're competing with yourself, just you and that golf course. So any golf course is fun, but don't get me wrong. The ones I listed, I'd love to play. There's a big part of your life that we haven't talked about yet. And that's Mount Olive university. You are the voice of the athletic programs over there. You do basketball, you do softball, volleyball. I I, I lost track of how many sports you do broadcast (laughs) over there. And I didn't know too much about the school because it's a smaller school, but I went on their website and I saw that they look, they were green. They're Trojans, but they look like Spartans. So I was excited for a sec. Cause I thought me and Striegel were going to be Michigan state Spartans and you were going to be a Mount Olive Spartan, but you're Trojans. So we'll let <laughs> you have that. Um, how did the opportunity to, to broadcast games for Mount Olive come about? And why do you still do it so often now, given how busy you are? Um, it's been about, 10, 12 years ago, one of the local TV stations here in Goldsboro, North Carolina, was going to broadcast a, a, a UMO basketball game. And they didn't have anybody to do play-by-play, and it was on a Tuesday night. Uh, so fortunately for me, a mutual friend of, of the TV station owner uh, got in touch and said, you need to call him. He'll, he'll do it, um, which was great. Yes, heck yeah, let's go do that. So I did that one-off game. How it kind of came about to be a regular gig now, about five years ago, 
the sports information director for the University of Mount Olive, a guy named by the, by the name of Ryan Smith, uh, started what is now the Trojan Sports Network, uh, which is all webcasting and, and television and, and everything that goes with it for all their athletics. And they got a ton of athletic programs. The only one they don't have yet is football. That's coming. Um, UMO is uh, an NCAA Division II school, and they asked me to, to be a part of it. They understood my schedule as far as travel and MRN, and they were more than willing to work around it. Um, the university is about 30 minutes south of me, so it's an easy drive to get to any yeah. event there. So if it's a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or sometimes Thursday, uh, if there's an event going on, what they essentially do is they've given me free reign to go on the composite schedule with all home events, whether it's men's or women's soccer, men's, women's volleyball, softball, baseball, basketball, uh, track and field, lacrosse, field hockey, whatever the case may be, they give me freedom to say, pick your schedule. So I'll go through and pick out what I'd like to do and I'd send nice. it to them. And um, I work about, I don't know, 35 or 40 events for them through a school year. Uh, they're about to start back up here in the next week and a half or so. Um, and I challenge myself because I want to get better as a broadcaster. So I want to get out of my comfort zone. As I told you earlier, Football, basketball, baseball, I'm a big sports fan. Golf, I can do you some golf. Uh, if, you, if you want to do hockey, I can do hockey. I played um, pickup hockey leagues, geez, for 15 years. Um, so so I, can, I can do those things. What I have never done, though, is lacrosse. What I've never done is men's volleyball. What I've never done is field hockey. Um, I've never called soccer or as the English students – give me you know, football. It's football. Uh, football boy football um so uh, it's a chance to challenge myself and to learn something else and a different discipline and believe me i spent gosh 10 hours maybe on youtube trying to learn terminology for for field hockey and lacrosse yeah. and all this stuff because i don't want to embarrass myself and i don't want to em embarrass the university most of all i don't want to embarrass those athletes and coaches uh, because given even though it's a small school in Eastern North Carolina, they have a ton. The overwhelming majority of their athletes are out of state and or international. Um, so the, the, the webcast, the Trojan Sports Network is mostly viewed by friends and family of people of the athletes. Right. So I don't want to embarrass them and, and I want to do them justice. So it, it, to me, it's, it's just so much fun. And it, it keeps me young because I'm around college students all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm around athletics. That doesn't mean I'm slim and trim. I'm not a specimen by any means. Please. But, you know, I, I, I do what I can. And it, and it motivates you to kind of kind of be up to up to date. I'm not one of those 51-year-olds that are like, you know, get off my lawn, you crazy kids. Just mow uh, your lawn. Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, I don't know. I have fun with it. It's a lot of fun. That being said you won't see me scheduling any more field hockey matches or any more lacrosse matches. I did my share. I did it. I can do it if I had to, but let's let the students that are in the broadcasting program handle that. That's good experience for them. I feel you. Yeah. I mean, you talked about watching hours of YouTube oh. videos to get the terminology down. I did similar things in college, but that was only just kind of for, you know, on a very small scale level. And even then I was overwhelmed. So I can't imagine what it's like now doing that for friends and family that are watching these, these student athletes again, all over the world. That's, that's gotta be a, a real interesting preparation process. 
it's not often you get positive feedback because that means you're doing your job. You'll get negative feedback. Oh yeah. But the worst thing that ever happened to me, whether it's been with MRN or the PGA tour or university of Mount Olive, the worst thing that ever happened to me happened. Uh, I guess it was last fall. I was doing a, a women's volleyball match and I said this girl's name wrong. And the, the, her mom wrote a scathing email to the university. Your broadcaster needs to learn my daughter's name and just harsh. And so the, the, the athletic director forwarded the email to me and just wrote FYI. And when I had my next event, I showed up at the arena for a basketball game uh, and I always get there an hour and a half, two hours early anyway, just to do some prep and talk to coaches and players. But uh, the AD walked up to me, goes, did you, did you reach out to that mom by chance? I said, heck no, I'm not. Re-. He said, are you doing the volleyball match coming up? And I looked at my schedule. I was like, well, yeah, I am. Cause I, I just happened to be off. And that's one of my ad scheduled. And he said, well, she's coming in from out of town. She wants to meet you. I thought, Oh my God. Oh boy. So I, uh, that, that volleyball match, I was terrified. I have, I had a, a mad mom, uh, because I said her daughter's name wrong. Uh, but she couldn't have been nicer. Um, and I, I told her, I said, believe me, I will never get this name wrong ever, <laughs> ever again. So, and I haven't, <laughs> I'm sure you haven't. <laughs> so a couple yeah, it's, it's good. It, working the UMO Trojan sports network is, is something that I think can do nothing but help me. Yeah, definitely. I'm sure it helps you on the weekends and what you do on the weekends helps you during the week for sure. All right. A couple fun ones and then I'll let you run. I read a story that happened to you when you were six years old and it involves a bike and getting hit by a car. Please fill in the blanks for me. My very first day learning how to ride a bike without training wheels. Yes. Oh boy. I got run over by a car. So, and a lot of people say that's what's wrong with me. So here, here's how this works. <laughs> we uh, are our street in Indiana in Muncie, Indiana, a street called Umber, uh, Umbarger Avenue. So, you know, time after time, my dad's holding the back of the seat and, you know, the left front handlebar, and he's kind of walking with me and then he'll mm-hmm. let go and I'll lean and fall off the bike. Oh, I'll lean this way and fall off the bike. Well, he's kind of walking with me, walking with me. And, and I say, okay, I think I got it. He lets go and I got it. I'm, I'm upright. I'm on my bike. And I, I go towards the left from the front of our house, go past the next house the next house down, there's a woman backing out of her driveway. Oh God! Apparently was mad at her husband or mad at somebody because she came out at a pretty good clip and <laughs> hammered me with the back of her oh car. And you're six? Six years old. Oh. And I went flying across the road. It was just a two-lane road. But in the air, I landed on the just on the edge of the road and then rolled off into the grass. Oh my my brand-new bicycle was pinned up underneath the car, uh, underneath the gas tank and the rear axle. And bent all the crap and you know obviously my parents are freaking out uh, my brother's kind of laughing because that's what brothers do um <laughs> my parents come running down the road i jump up and you know i got a little nick or two on me a little blood and i'm never gonna hurt a kid right i mean that's what you do you, you come in bleeding that's that's part of playing in those right. days uh but my parents were just all beside themselves that i just got run over and hit and knocked out across the street it's like well he's no. never gonna learn how to ride a bike <laughs> No, yeah, and the the, uh, the woman that jumped out of her car, she was all apologetic, and heck, she started crying is what my mom ended up telling me. I didn't know that. I didn't look at it. I was more worried about it. I ran up and was trying to get my bike out from underneath the car, but I couldn't. 
Uh, they ended up having to get a jack to jack up the car to pull my bike out. My bike was totaled. But yeah, that, my very first day, as soon as my dad let me go and I got it for the first time, I get run over. <laughs> Unbelievable. And I can't believe that you weren't distraught at all. I, I mean, on paper, you would think any six-year-old kid that gets hit by a car at a pretty good clip that gets sent flying across the street be like ah, i'm good i don't want to ride a bike anymore but you're good so good for i you. was distraught because my new bike was ruined it was yeah but you were okay which is the important thing i would be distraught because i just got hit by a car <laughs> but no you just wanted your bike <laughs> that's all it was um this story may be even wilder so you fly a lot alex a anybody that works in the industry they fly a lot you can get to certain tiers when you're on certain airlines, you know where I'm going with this. I do. This is a recent did, story. <laughs> did you really fly all the way to Alaska and back in the same day to get to a certain status? Yes. <laughs> and I'll do it again Goodness. if I have to. Um, so I, I fly Delta Airlines and they have silver is the lowest, gold platinum and their top tier is diamond level. I've never made diamond ever. And last year, last oh year, <laughs> I was this close, so close to making diamond. And, and the way you do that is you have to have a certain amount of money spent on plane tickets, plus a certain amount of segments or uh, actual miles themselves. Right, right. So either segments or miles plus a certain amount of money. Well, I, I hit the money part. I was fortunate there. I, I hit the money part. Don't let me back up. I'm fortunate because the network covers it, right? They cover all the, the, the commercial flights that, that I work on. But I still fly a lot when I'm not working for vacations and, and whatever. So I was I was close. All I needed was like 1,200 miles to, to be able to make it. And I started looking around and what flight can I do? Because I'm going to buy a flight. And this was in December. I'm going to buy a flight because I'm making diamond by God. And <laughs> you had your mind made up. Yeah. So I look at it, it's like, okay, my home airport is Raleigh. So where can I fly round trip from Raleigh to get me the miles I need? So I looked at going to LA and that was not going to be enough. I was going to be like a hundred miles short. Can't have that. Can't do that. So I have a direct flight on Delta from Raleigh to Seattle. I thought, okay, that'll handle it. It didn't. That was like 50 miles short. Can't have so that. I was like, okay, how am I going to do this? So I've never been to the state of Alaska. That's one of them I need to check off my list. There's only like four states I've never been to. So I said, okay, if I go to Alaska, that'll get me what I need. So <laughs> yeah. I flew, I left at 6 a.m. Eastern out of Raleigh, flew from Raleigh direct to Seattle, Washington, spent an hour and a half in Seattle's airport, then jumped on the flight and flew from Seattle to Anchorage, Alaska. Uh <laughs> It's crazy. And this is in December. It was like six below zero. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. And all I had was my backpack because it was just a 24-hour deal for me. So the only way I could make this work is I had to spend eight hours in Alaska. So I had eight hours in Anchorage, which is beautiful that time of year. Hope you enjoyed uh, your stay. Uh, yeah, right. And, and I didn't plan on doing a whole lot. So I wasn't prepared clothing-wise. Uh, I wore sh I'm a shorts fanatic. I wear shorts all me the time. Too. But I did take a pair of like wind pants, jogging pants, uh, had those on and I just had a, like a windbreaker jacket. So I thought I'm in Anchorage, Alaska. I'm not going to spend the entire eight hours here in the airport. Right. So me and my backpack, we, uh, we got an Uber and we Ubered around a little bit, went down to downtown, 
but it was so freaking cold. It was, I, I walked outside for just a little bit, snow and ice everywhere. It was beautiful. And, and for anybody that knows uh, in December, your, your time of daylight's only like four hours. Yeah. It's dark most of the 24 hours. So it was already dark. Uh, so I couldn't see a whole lot. Um, the airport's by the waterway. It's just beautiful, beautiful countryside. And I'm going to go back sometime just to see it. Um, so yeah, I spent about two hours and then went back to the airport and spent the rest six hours hanging around in the airport <laughs> and Anchorage has a lovely airport, by the way. Uh, I'm sure. <laughs> and so then I had the red eye left at 1030 Alaska time sure. and flew from Anchorage, Alaska to Minneapolis, Minnesota, an hour and a half there, Minneapolis back to Raleigh. Bam. I'm diamond loving life. There you go. Mission accomplished. <laughs> you gotta You're incredible. You, gotta you know that? <laughs> Few people would go to the lengths that you did to get to a certain tier. Although, I mean, I'm listening to the story, right? If you're that close. You I got to. I, I think I would have done it too. You yeah. got to. I mean, I wish it was something where I could just fly to New Orleans and back, but it wasn't. Hey, you got you got to check another state off your list, and even though Absolutely it was dark right. the whole time, you got to go outside, get a mini frostbite, and head home. Twenty four hour stretch all the way to Alaska and back, and that wrapped up the season for me. <laughs> incredible, incredible. All right, uh, last thing I didn't bring it up when we were talking about acting a little bit earlier, but some people listening may know the show One Tree Hill. Yeah, you had a hand in that show. Please explain. Yeah, I um. After doing the acting stuff down in Florida, when I came back to North Carolina, went with MRN, I still had that acting bug in me. It's like, what can I do? And I didn't want to just go and do a play down at the local, you know, theater. That's not that's not what I wanted. For the to stars. Do. Heck yeah! Look where I got by basically fudging my way along. So got all the again, way to Alaska. The worst thing they can do is say no. Um, so at the time, One Tree Hill, they did all their production down in Wilmington, North Carolina at Screen Gym Studios. A lot of movies, a lot of TV shows have been shot in that area. So I drove down. Wilmington's an only an hour and 20 minute drive south of me. So I drive down and literally just walked in out in front of Screen Gym Studios uh, is a place called Finn Cannon and Associates Talent Agency. I'm opening the door. If the door's not locked, I'm going in. Okay, that, that's how it works. So I pull the door, it's open. Heck, I'm going on in. And the, the girl at the front desk, can I help you? I said, yeah, uh, what do I need to do to audition? And kind of caught her off guard. And she goes, yeah. well, can, I, can I get a headshot? You have your headshot? I was like, no, I don't have anything. I said, I got a phone, you can take one. And she was kind of laughed. She's like, you're, you're serious. I said, I'm dead serious. Yeah, take a picture of me right now. And she goes, well, hang on a second. She goes to the back. I'm sure she went back there to, to have a good laugh with her uh -huh. friends. Well, she comes back with this other woman who's carrying a camera. And she said, stand up against the wall. She takes a headshot right then and there in the, in the lobby of Finn Cannon and writes some information down. We talk a little bit, wants to know what I've done, what I want to do. And I was like, man, I'll do anything. I don't care. Uh, I just want to get back into it. I just want to have some fun with it. Uh, I do have a tight schedule. So if you got some production going on on a Monday or Tuesday or a Wednesday, that'd be ideal. So she said, well, let me see what we can come up with. Um, I don't know, maybe a week, 10 days went by and I get a call from Finn Cannon and Associates. Hey, can you be down here on set tonight? And this is maybe tonight? one o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, it's like one in the afternoon. Uh, tonight? What time tonight? She said, well, we need you. The, the call time would be 10 p.m. 
Well, I didn't know that part of the biz, as they say. Um, they do the majority of their shooting in the middle of the night. I learned that the hard way. I was like, well, heck, I got nothing going on. So, yeah, I jumped in the car and drove down there. Didn't know what, what the deal was. So, as it turns out, uh, they sent me to wardrobe and makeup and put me in this little suit and tie and comb my hair and all this stuff. And I was a used car salesman and the used car lot was inside the soundstage. And I thought it was two o'clock in the afternoon with the lighting. It was spectacular. Wow. Uh, and then that went okay. Um, didn't have any lines, but I walked around and shook hands, you know, on camera and doing what I'm supposed to do. Uh, that led to me being a, a basketball referee. It led me to being a uh, police officer. It led me to being, gosh, um, man number two in a park. Uh, it led me to being a surgeon operating on one of the main characters who got burned in a fire, a character by the name of Dan, who was kind of the villain. He got burned in a fire. Somebody tried to burn him down. And This is incredible. I, I had to do the surgery on him. I still have the gown that they smeared the blood and, and the, the rubber gloves for the surgery with the fake yeah. blood. They even put the like black soot on the gloves. I still have those. They're, they're in my other room over there. But um, yeah, so I got to do a lot of neat little things to to do that. And gosh, it was fun. And I, I think I think one of the funnest ones I did was, and it, it sounds kind of weird. Keep in mind, this is television. It wasn't real. Um, it's very sensitive, obviously. But um, because of school shootings and things of that nature, even back then. Uh, they had a, an episode that was a school shooting. Tree Hill High School had a school shooting. And I was one of the police officers that had to run and tackle who the main the main actor, a guy named Chad Michael Murray. Um, I had to run and one of about four of us police officers, as he came out of the school carrying Sophia Bush, who's gone on to be a megastar now on, on television and movies. Uh, he was carrying Sophia, but when he came out, we as cops didn't know that he was actually rescuing her. Uh, we thought he was the bad guy. Yeah. Um, so he put Sophia down and we jump on Chad Michael Murray and we had to jump on him and tackle him. It was awesome. Uh, so unbelievable. Fortunately for me, we got to do that three takes. So I got to tackle him three times. It was awesome. <laughs> Going back to your football days, huh? I know, it, was, it was great. <laughs> you are, you, you know, there's a lot of interesting stories in the NASCAR garage. I don't think anybody scratches the surface with you. You're like the most interesting man at MRN. You got all these tentacles, and nobody knows any of them. You're an actor. You're you wanted to be a surgeon, and then you acted as a surgeon. Look at you. You're all I, over I, the place. I love it. I and you're right. A lot of people don't know a lot of those things because it's not about me. I mean, what I do that's all fun, and I love having fun and doing those types of things. And uh, whether it's calling that game or being on the first tee with, with Rory McIlroy, announcing Rory McIlroy to the world, or, or calling a, a checkered flag at Richmond this coming weekend. It's not about me. It's about other things, and it's about other people. And I'm just fortunate that I get a chance to be a part of things. Um, i, I got to tell you, I'm impressed. I don't know where you did the digging and where you found this stuff, but I'm impressed. Uh, you, you got some good stuff there. Well, thankfully, you're not the only one to say that. I hope you won't be the last either, but I pride myself on my research. I, I, I know you say it's not about you, but this show is all about you, so I wanted to dig deep and do you justice. All right, last thing. I like to ask all the guests that I have on you know, that have accomplished so much already in their professional careers as you have. You're at the top of that list. If there's anything else that you'd like to accomplish professionally in motorsports, I think I may know the answer, but I want to hear it from you. Is there <laughs> anything else that you think that you would like to do 
on the microphone in the world of motorsports? Yes, there, there's one thing, and it's not NASCAR. Even though I love NASCAR, my mm-hmm. allegiance is to the Motor Racing Network, make no question. Um, but growing up a, a young lad in, in the Hoosier State yep. and growing up at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in the month of May, I want to broadcast the Indy 500 just one time, um, even if it's for one lap. Um, I want to do it. That's That would be the ultimate to me. Uh, I'm very fortunate. I'm friends with Mark James, who's the anchor of the, the IndyCar radio network. Um, he invited me to, to come up to the opening day of practice back in May this year to come on the air with the IMS radio guys uh, to, to be a part of their opening day of practice for the 500. And that was the coolest thing I've ever done. And it's rare that I get somewhat speechless and have a hard time finding words. That was one of those days. I was like, I can't believe it. I'm, these are Indy cars practicing for the Indianapolis 500. It's as close as I've ever been. It's as close as I'll probably ever get to it. And I owe Mark James everything for, for giving me that opportunity. But maybe someday down the road, who knows what the future is going to hold. But if I could broadcast the Indy 500, whether it's on radio or television or on the public address system, because one of my heroes was Tom Carnegie, the PA voice of the Indianapolis yep. Motor Speedway. Um, some way, somehow, I, I want to be there on race day working as opposed to being there enjoying the race as a fan. I got no doubt in my mind. You will make <laughs> it happen sooner rather than later. They would be lucky to have you, and you will make their broadcast in that race the greatest spectacle in racing for a reason. So I got no doubt that that will happen. Listen, you've given me so much of your time. You've poured out your entire life story over the last hour plus. I can't thank you enough for that. This has been a joy and a thrill for me. I know that we've kind of crossed paths in the industry over the last couple of years, but we've never really gotten to sit down and, and chat with each other for an extended period of time like this. So I really appreciate your time and just everything that you've done for the sport and for MRN. It's it's great getting to listen to you every week, and I cut up all the audio for Sirius every week, so I get to hear you and your calls. So. Let's have Shannon Benaric put that green flag in the air every morning on TMD, and we'll keep it that way because you are one of the best, and I appreciate you so much. That's awfully kind of you to say I appreciate that, and I appreciate what you do. I love what you do. This this podcast, this show, uh, I watch it all the time. It's spectacular, and I love your race recaps. They are <laughs> some of the greatest stuff I, I've ever seen, and, it's, and I mean that sincerely. It's fun. Thanks. Your Joey Logano is spot on. Afric, thanks. <laughs> That's it. And we are back. Whew, man, I told you, he's so interesting. That that bike story had me dying. The fact that he flew to Alaska just to get tier status had me dying. And uh, yeah, he, I mean, in fairness, like I told him, I, I think I would do the same thing, but that doesn't make it any less crazy. <laughs> so thank you to Alex for sharing all those different stories. And again, such a stand-up professional guy listen to him every week and it'd be an honor to work alongside and with him one day hopefully that can happen down the road thank you so much alex i appreciate your time appreciate your perspective and appreciate everything that you've done man really do how about happy harvick i'm sure that everybody that is that kevin harvick fan is in fact happy because for the first time in 65 races He's back in victory lane, the place everybody wants to be. We haven't talked about Kevin Harvick winning a race in almost two full calendar years. But by golly, he's done it. He's done it at long last. Rodney Childers put that car up front. Kevin Harvick kept it there. And lo and behold, the four car back in victory lane as a winner in the Cup Series. Does so at Michigan International Speedway. His sixth career win at the track. 
He pops the proverbial playoff bubble. Say that five times fast. But it's true. He really does. Because Martin Truex Jr., who is top four in the standings, is now out on points by 19, his car number. Ryan Blaney, who is second in the regular season points, currently holds the last playoff spot just by the skin of his teeth. Will he get in or won't he? We don't know. We're going to find out. The fact that Harvick won is something that he had to do. He was not going to get in based on points. It was going to take a miracle and then some if that was going to happen. He needed to win at Michigan, Richmond, Watkins Glen, or Daytona. And again, by golly, he's done it. It's hard to believe because for most of the season and, and even parts of last, you said to yourself, I cannot see Kevin Harvick winning a race. I, I can't see it. And I'm one of those people. I said as much on Sirius this week on TMD. I legitimately thought that Kevin Harvick's days as a winner in the Cup Series were over. I did. When you factor in the next-gen car, the big adjustment that that is, Stuart Haas racing, slow adjustment to the car, Ford performances, lacking of, well, performance, and everything in between, I just didn't see a path that Harvick was going to wind up in victory lane again. But again, Michigan is one of those tracks, and it's always one of those races that lends itself to weird, quirky strategy. Harvick didn't necessarily get up there just because of that, but the way that the race played out sure did help, and once he got clean air, once Joey raced the absolute snot out of Bubba Wallace for second place, he was able to get out to a four-plus second lead and hold it for the rest of the way. No caution came out, and if that did, I think that would have probably spelled bad news given that Bubba was really fast, Denny was on rails, Larson was still up there battling too, Joey's a bonsai move on restarts away from making things chaotic. But the bottom line is, Kevin Harvick, Rodney Childers, and the four-team they come through when it matters most. And it mattered a whole heck of a lot on Sunday at MIS because, again, they were not going to make the playoffs. And once they're into the playoffs, sure, they can still win races, but you got to think that their performance would have tapered off if they didn't make it just because of the lack of motivation. I mean, I hate to say it because, you know, race car drivers say, no, I want to go out and win every week. And that's true. But human nature says otherwise, that if you don't make the playoffs, you're not going to be in a great mental headspace going to the racetrack every week. I think that Kevin Harvick is not a championship contender right now, but as crazy as it is to say, it's very possible that in the next two, three, four, five weeks, as we head into the start of the playoffs, that four team could get hot. I'm not saying that they're going to light the world on fire and win three races in a row. I'm just saying that if they get out of the first round and maybe even the second one, there could be some tracks that shape up well for him. Ford could maybe get hot at the right time. It's all about what have you done for me lately. I don't care what you did two weeks ago. I don't care what you did two days ago. I don't care what you did two years ago. I care what you're going to do for me two seconds, two minutes, two hours, two races, two weeks, two months from now. It's all about the future and the present. The past is good. You can go off of that. But when it comes to results, and this is a results-based sport, a results-based industry, you need to perform when it matters most. Kevin Harvick did that on Sunday, and we'll see if he can do it moving forward. That'll wrap things up for episode 159 of Victory Lane 2.0. Really appreciate you guys tuning in. Really, really appreciate Alex Hayden carving out so much of his time on a busy week. He's traveling here and there and everywhere and broadcasting games and races and to give me a lot of his time that could have been spent prepping or relaxing. I really, really appreciate that. 
Quick programming update. Alex and the Motor Racing Network are going to be at Richmond Raceway this upcoming weekend. I normally would be there with them. I'm really sad that I wasn't able to go earlier this year because I got COVID right before I was supposed to go out to RVA. I will not be making the trip to Richmond. I will not be making the trip to Watkins Glen the week after that. So two races that I normally would go to, considering their geographic proximity to me, I'm sad to miss them, but I can't be too sad because I'm going overseas to France. Yes, the Eiffel Tower. I'm going to France with my parents, my grandparents, and my wonderful girlfriend, Robin. We're gonna enjoy a nice pre-planned family vacation. So this has been on the books for a while. Again, sad to miss the next two races in person. Hopefully we'll be back at the racetrack soon. I probably won't be able to follow along as much as I would like. I'm gonna try to enjoy myself and unplug a little bit. I have trouble doing that, but I'm gonna do my best. Uh, but I will follow along as much as I can. I'm planning on making TikToks in France <laughs> of the race recap. So knock on wood, hopefully that will go well. But as a programming update, no episodes on this podcast feed for the next couple weeks. I had plans to do that. I had interviews in the can for one reason or another. My schedule, their schedules, it just didn't really end up working out that I was able to pre-record it, pre-edit it, and get it ready to post for while I am overseas out of the country. So apologies there. I know that there's plenty of other NASCAR content to get you through these two weeks because Lord knows if I'm the only show that you are listening to, A, what is wrong with you? B, how have I not paid you yet for being a supporter? And C, listen to Sirius XM, NASCAR radio, because they got you covered and we got you covered 24-7, 365, literally on the channel. So please go ahead and do that. I will talk to you guys here in a few weeks when I am back from Paris and France, uh, hopefully full of croissants and omelets. And by the time I get back, we will have decided the playoff field because we got Richmond, we got Watkins Glen, and I get back right before Daytona, the regular season finale. We're at 15 winners right now. Will I get back to 17, to 16, to 15? I don't know. We'll all find out together. I will catch you guys on the flip side in a couple weeks. Enjoy all the racing for the rest of this regular season party, people. Au revoir.